welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners who will introduce themselves. And our icebreaker question was inspired by a well-known analyst at Gartner, Anton Kavakian. And he said at a conference that when it comes to security operations, it should be about people first, then processes, and then tools. And I wanted to hear your thoughts, whether or not you think that that's the right order. Is there anything that you would add or subtract? This is Forrest, and uh, I'd agree with that. People stands out to me as, no offense to humans, but they're almost always the weakest link, I think, in a lot of security. Um, And then process over tools, I think, in some cases, uh, a not amazing budget for security, but if you do things right, you can actually accomplish a lot more than you could and secure a lot more than if you just, you know, threw money at tools, I would argue. This is Mike Thompson, and I also agree, and I think it goes beyond just security, but really the foundation of any organization. Uh, you want good people in place first, you want to have good processes, and you want the tools to be able to enable those people in those processes. And having come from some previous companies that <laughs> ignored the people part of that equation, I can, I can definitely see the, the negative impact of, of not having the, the appropriate people in place to, to enact either a security plan or just like a business operational plan. This is Mike Buckby. I worry that this misses something. And to me, that's really like the organizational kind of things that, you know, you can do all of this and still have a very insecure environment. You can do all these things like worry about the people first, the process second and the tools last. And you can still come to a spot where like, oh, we, you know, secured the entirely wrong thing. And I think that's too often lost. And to me, IT is still like a very young field. And part of the, the maturation of the entire field is that it becomes, you know, more and more involved in uh, the strategic aspects of the business. And I, I think that is just such a vital thing. And I just worry that might be lost in this. Thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. And so August is vacation time and it feels like everybody's out of the office. I came across an article that a security pro recommended as a tip for people not to share their vacation photos while they're away because there's so much information about us online available for free and it makes it easier for attackers to use our photos to their advantage and they're getting even better at phishing us with all the extra information they have and They've really significantly improved their messaging over the years. I got a phone call recently that was totally fake, but it, the message that they left me was crafted perfectly. And it really forced me to take a closer look. And I know sometimes people say I'm a little too paranoid. What do you guys think about this security recommendation about your holiday photos? To me, there's really two things. This has been going around for a while, like, oh, don't share on social media that you're out because like burglars will come to your house and steal all your stuff, which always seemed rather aspirational to the burglars that they were that motivated, that they would actually like take the time to plot these things out. But I think we have seen actual examples of, you know, vacation information, uh, just the fact that someone's out and they're away from the office being used as an entry point for phishing. I believe this happened with Snapchat where the CEO and founder was away. And so there was a spear phishing email that came in that said exactly, hey, yeah, I'm in, you know, the south of France this week, but I really need the payroll information for this other project. Can you just like email that to me? And I'm using my personal email because I can't get into the VPN because the ISP is real bad here in, uh, 
in France. So they did. They emailed back the information because the data was right and they were able to impersonate it. So I, I think that's much more of an actual threat. I think it is maybe something to be concerned about. So I, I think it's at least plausible uh, as a threat. I think there's been a lot of real life use cases of this, or, or not use cases, but examples. And this is a little bit outside of you know tech security, but a couple of years ago, there was that a group of teenagers that were robbing celebrities in Los Angeles, and they were basically just saying, okay, Paris Hilton is tweeting that she's at this club. I know she's not at her mansion. We're going to go break in and steal all her jewelry. And that's exactly what they did. They targeted all these celebrities knowing exactly where they were because they're being uh, photographed by paparazzi in different places. They knew their 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 homes were unprotected. And this is even the, the, the plot point behind uh, the classic movie Home Alone and the Sticky Bandits targeting uh, families in Chicago. The Wet Bandits. <laughs> oh, my bad. Sticky Bandits is Home Alone too. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks for keeping me in check. <laughs> I was going to say, even your, your initial, it really sounded like a screenplay you were writing. You're like, opening scene, Hollywood, California, lots of people on social media. Well, they did, they did make it into a movie. Sofia Coppola eventually directed a movie called Bling Ring about those, uh, that gang of teenagers. But, Is that uh, what that was about? I did not. Yeah. I heard about the movie, but didn't realize that. It's interesting, though, that you brought it back to the celebrities with like them being on social media. Because when you were talking a, a second ago, I was like listening to it. Oh, you know, people, you know, don't post on social media when you're leaving the house because burglars will come. But, you know, maybe it's a, a different thing with these CEOs. And I think it depends on the perspective. You know, if somebody is watching one specific thing that they want to get into, they're they're looking for vulnerabilities, you know, maybe the executive level or the C-level of an organization looking for vulnerabilities. And yeah, then vacation photos can be, a, you know, I would say a, a good way in. But I think that the opposite side of when you're just kind of regular noise out there, I don't know if that's necessarily as big a threat. I think the difference is, is somebody starting from, I want to get into this specific place and then finding vulnerabilities as opposed to, am I looking through a sea of vulnerabilities trying to find something to go into? I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's a matter oh, of perspective. It, you know, of course, that makes a lot of sense to me. And what it made me think of was PR, that if you're a part of the executive of a public company or a company that's very prominent, it's very common for the entire executive group to get specialized PR training on like what you should say, what you shouldn't, you know, just that kind of training on like how to respond to things in a way that doesn't open up the company to, you know, lawsuits or, or weird situations that would harm them. And this, this sounds a lot like that, that this is sort of like special training for executives on like how to think about these things and respond to them in a way that protects the company that no one wants to break into my stuff, but our CEO is in a different spot. You know, the CFO in a, in a different spot even from him. I'm thinking about like if someone's trying to sell me something and you have like the exact dates of where you're going to be out of the office and then people who are trying to sell you stuff know exactly, you know, where you're at or or if they want to reach someone else, they'll sometimes people in their away message will say, if you need immediate assistance, email so-and-so. So then they more information. What I do to, to deter that is I only... I do the opposite. So when I'm in the office, I set up an out of office message saying that I'm out of the office. But when I'm in the office or when I'm out of the office, I don't because I want to catch any burglar that wants to come to my desk. And I'm, I'm prepared at all, at all times. Force, force out of office honeypot operation. Like we're going to get these people. We got cans of paint on string. Like we're, we're all set. So. Do a citizen's arrest. 
Speaking of spammy calls and fish emails, there was a TED talk about what happens when you reply to a spam email. And it was a hilarious talk where he corresponded with a gentleman named Solomon about transporting gold and then using code names like KitKat for their correspondence. And everyone had a laugh to what happens when you reply to, to a spam email. And This question is more about playing with ideas if it inspired you to reply to spam emails or if you thought it might make a good training video, maybe they should have used it to change it up a bit to train for fish emails on on clicking links. I mean, I think this is really funny and it's, you know, the only practical value I can see out of this maybe is, you know, it's always worth asking more questions. Uh, to try and find out if something's real. So if, if, if assuming you're not clicking any links or anything or sending any of your personal information, sending a follow-up email to something that seems suspicious and seeing if there's anything suspicious in the reply might might be clarifying, might be helpful. And then he makes a good point, which is, you know, this is, this is a fun thing to do. If you're entertained by such activities, then at the very least, you're, you're wasting these people's time and they can't do more damage to less technical people who, who may not know that they're dealing with a, a scammer. Yeah, personally, the last thing I want is for them to see that my email address is valid, to be completely honest. So I don't want to reply to anything. Good point. CIO, they had a list of seven things startups needed to know about cybersecurity. And we talked about phishing and humans. I'm still not into the humans are the weakest link part. Because why do we keep blaming humans? Because they are humans. But <laughs> What? this was when four said that in the intro about humans as the weakest link okay (laughs) but they included other items like cybersecurity impacts everyone not just big businesses the threat of data breaches ransomware malware ddos attacks access control and the importance of uh, investing in security and i was wondering if you thought of anything else that needed to be a part of that list from a development standpoint, there's a thing that goes around a lot. It's sort of like a collective wisdom, which is like, don't try to roll your own crypto. Like, don't try to like implement the cryptography standards on your own. Use like well-defined libraries. And I used to do a lot of work with startups and I saw a similar thing sort of at a structural level where they would not want to spend like the $30 to get like a proper setup of something. So they would just like make this the worst hackiest solution because their, their time horizon for everything is like next month. Like if we aren't doing this by next month, we're going to, the whole place will catch on fire. And, and so there's just no investment or thought in anything but like executing it. And I think that really is to their detriment. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but you know, s- small businesses and startups with tight deadlines and tight budgets, like and they're going to cut corners. They're going to find the quickest, easiest solution. And a lot of times it's not until they're a mature company that they have the time or resources to to be able to properly evaluate this stuff. So, yeah, if you're some really well-funded startup, you got a big, uh, you know, angel investment round and you got money to spend. Yeah, focus on this stuff. And, and you should certainly always have it in mind. But I think it's hard for, for small companies that are just starting out to really have a holistic well thought out approach to this type of stuff. I mean, a lot of people are just kind of taking it as it comes and trying to make the best decision at the time. 
So I guess all you could say is keep security in mind when you're making those decisions, not just, uh, you know, what's what's cheapest, what's fastest. I would agree. I mean, the truth of the matter is kind of like Mike Buckby <laughs> said, you know, about going out and not spending $30 for a, a simple tool and, and just trying to kind of do it on your own just because you're trying to, that $30 might be, you know, something you're just not comfortable spending. But truth of the matter is like there are out of the box solutions for things that, you know, there is an upfront cost, but in the long term, many times they're proven and you don't necessarily have to worry about kind of troubleshooting uh, a certain amount of like new development there. In the long term, that could save you tons of time. So this list, they talked about ransomware and we've talked a lot about it before, uh, but on TechCrunch, they released an article about the rise of pseudo ransomware. Well, I think it came out here because, uh, well, they were talking about WannaCry and, and how in the end, like it got so high profile that there probably wasn't a lot of ransom activity back to their uh, Bitcoin setup. In the end, it actually caused more destruction than ransoms. And I don't know if they're 100% sure that WannaCry was exactly this, but I think there is a general understanding that there are a number of ransomware attacks out there that when you look at the results where it causes more destruction than actual probably profit, that in many cases they're probably built for the purpose of causing destruction and looking like ransomware. Does, does that sound right to, to you guys? I think it's hard to, to look at this random piece of code that's, you know, running around all these systems and divine the intent of it only because like we've seen so many companies actually try to make good software and then do a horrible job at it, you know, and mess things up. I have no reason to think that ransomware is any different than any other field of software engineering where, you know, your intentions that oh, I'm going to make this and it's going to make me a ton of ransom money from all these people paying in bitcoins only to find out that most people can't even work bitcoin and it might as well be something something else and totally ineffective or that, you know, they wrote the wrong thing and it's too aggressive and it deletes stuff too fast and it's hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, I would actually something that does stand out to me when I was reading this though is somebody who is necessarily qualified to write advanced ransomware that's, you know, very effective and that kind of spreading through a network does not necessarily mean that they're also qualified to think about the strategic implications of their deployment. You know, maybe making it too fast, too high profile, like is just not something that they ever really considered because it's not what they're thinking about. Well, to me, it's a lot like spam, you know, like spam emails that they send a million in the hopes that they get like a couple, a couple sales because it costs them nothing. You know, it costs the for distribution, it costs nothing for this. And we're seeing more and more like sort of ransomware toolkits where someone just like clicks together a couple different modules and they have a ransomware and they kind of come up with a kind of novel way to distribute it. And then it takes off. So they only made, you know, $100,000 from it. Well, that was a day's worth of work. Like that's a good payday. <laughs> that's almost a more troubling thing, which isn't in here are like there are fake ransomware attacks where they will just like scramble up your files with a PowerShell script and then say, oh, it's encrypted. Send money to this Bitcoin address and we'll tell you the, how to unlock it. And of course, you know, you pay it and nothing's unlocked. Also a problem. And, and all of this is going to get worse. But have you guys thought about how companies have been in some ways forced to improve their security because of ransomware? I mean, absolutely. Like I, I, uh, I think I've told this anecdote before on an earlier episode of this podcast, but a, a customer I was working with many years ago in my old jobs, they had been hit with ransomware before and mostly ignored it because they didn't quite understand the threat. We, we cleaned it up the best we could, restored from snapshots, whatever. And then this, this office manager I was working with, he had just recently watched like an episode of Law & Order or CSI or something to that effect. And the whole episode was based around ransomware and he was just so scared. He just came to me, he's like, is this real? Is this fiction from TV show? I was like, You've been hit with this three times this year. 
<laughs> so I think the awareness of ransomware on a, on a more global scale now is not just something that IT professionals talk about. You know, it's in mainstream news has hopefully awakened people to think, okay, this is something that we need to have processes in place. It's a growing threat. We can't just rely on uh, having semantic endpoint protection or you know some sort of AV solution in place. Like we we need to really think from front to back about you know how we protect our data. So I and I think we've seen real results here as well. I mean, our, our, our people we talk to on a day to day basis are, are taking this very seriously, and it's you know a main talking point among security now as, as opposed to kind of a a niche thing. Well, one thing that the CIO list didn't really cover, I think should be on people's radar is biometrics. And the other day in the office elevator, I noticed a Citibank ad voicing their ability now to authenticate with your face and fingers. I also met someone on a plane recently who told me he started going through security with biometrics so he wouldn't have to wait in line. And the privacy guru, she wrote a blog post, What's in a Face? And while I liked some of the legal and privacy information she shared, I like her question the most. Who owns your face? And what are the commercial and societal benefits of facial recognition? I feel like it's this technology is finally coming and it's been used in other countries, but in the U.S. it's a little different. But I was wondering how you imagine this being unfolded here in the state. It's already it's already out there. I, I just came back from uh, traveling internationally last week. I came through uh, customs at JFK Airport. They when I had to go scan my passport, took a little picture of my face. There's facial recognition in that, and the, the customs agent confirmed it to me because I have a very generic name, and unfortunately there's some bad dude out there in the world who has my name. So I can never get through uh, Border Patrol easily. I always have to go into some special line. They X me out. They take extra photos of me. And I asked him, because this has happened numerous times now, I said, hey, I just wanted to confirm, you know, is there anything I can do to avoid this? He's like, nope, someone has your name, and we couldn't verify based on your picture with facial recognition that you weren't him. It, it's happening. And, and obviously, I'm sure we've all, if, it, if, if well, I can't speak for everyone, but if you have a Facebook account, I'm sure it's happened where you've uploaded a photo, and it automatically detects your friend and, you know, suggests, hey, do you want to go tag Forrest in this photo? And the first time that ever happened to me that I uploaded a, a photo and Facebook automatically tagged it, it, I mean, it caught me off guard. I mean, I knew that tech was out there, but to see it on a consumer level that on, on, a, on a website that hundreds of millions of people use, I mean, the amount of data that Facebook must have about us is astonishing. And we're only going to see it increase. And I think in the next year, we're really going to see it explode. You know, one of the big rumors of the new iPhone is that, you know, it's going to have an edge to edge screen and thus no home button. And thus it's going to use facial recognition instead of your fingerprint to unlock your phone. So if that's the case, you know, Apple's going to have a, a face map of untold number of people across the globe this time next year. Forrest, go. I'm looking something up that's related to this. The thing that stands out to me, and I've kind of mentioned this before, you know, talking about sort of the privacy concerns here. Well, I've kind of alluded to it before. It's just like my concern is if there's you know, not any kind of standard about it or legislation about it. I mean, companies are really going to go as far as they they possibly can with it, I think. And, and you know, I think it's not just necessarily about Mike talking about customs. I mean, you know, companies, because there's money to be made from it, you know, targeted advertising, you know, on the street. Uh, I'm trying to think, wasn't there, was it like Minority Report, some kind of like science fiction movie where somebody's walking around and, you know, basically they're getting like targeted ads, like at a mall or something like that. I would argue that's only a matter of time. You know, you understand with the, targeted advertising online, you know, where there's, you know, you kind of have a profile floating out there. I mean, it's all numbers basically, but it's you. 
Yeah, I was going to mention that same scene in Minority Report. <laughs> Mike, did, did you find what you're going to find online? I did. And it's a Stack Overflow question that someone asked in September of 2009. And it's, can anyone tell me how to detect faces in a static picture um, using JavaScript? And all of the answers at the time are like, wow, and I thought I was the only one reaching for impossible goals. You can't. It's a complex solution. It's near impossible. You haven't accepted any of these answers. That's because it's like against the realm of computer science. It's just not going to be possible. And then over the last like couple years, this has gotten more and more and more easy to do. And so now there's like a free jQuery library that you can just use. You just drop in and, hey, detect the faces in this and it'll return like XY coordinates like for a boundary around the face in any given picture. We have seen this happen that fast that, you know, in just that amount of time, uh, this has become such a commodity and this is going to make its way into everything. And so like you were asking about Facebook and I think, yeah, that's really problematic because they're going to have this whole graph of all this stuff and they're trying to get into devices and they've tried to make phones and they're trying to make augmented reality glasses. And so as people wander around, they're just going to have a list of like where everyone is at all times. But I think also, you know, we talk about like IOT and like IOT is getting so cheap and so it's everywhere. So it's a big security problem. Well, we're going to have IOT everywhere that's also doing facial recognition and, you know, little, you know, $3 toys you buy at Walgreens that know my kids' faces and like talk to them. So I, I think it's so much to try to take in and it's such a scale that we have trouble even deciding if it's good or bad right now. I have no idea if that was worth the time we spent for me to look that up, but I enjoyed it. So. No, it totally was. Actually, I was thinking of an, a podcast. It's not really related, but it just mentioned that, that the technology we used back then to fly to the moon, we didn't even have Facebook and, and IoT devices and biometrics back then that we were able to fly to the moon with the technology we had back then. Can you imagine what we can do now? And it, it's amazing. Yeah, the Apollo, I was going to say the Apollo missions, not one of them was able to play words with friends. So <laughs> it was a lot of, it was a different time. You know? It was. And finally, um, I came across an article about a firm willing to pay half a million dollars for a messaging app that, with the, that has a zero day. And who needs to create a startup if you're good at finding zero days? What stood out to me is as I was reading the article, I expected that this would be some of the other things we link to over time where you can like buy like server time at, on some Cisco server on the dark web. I assume this was some dark web business, but it's not. It's a public, or I don't know if they're public, but you know, a, a, a easily accessible business that is profiting off these these zero days and and who knows where they're selling that information to. I mean, if you're a security researcher, $500,000 for an exploit is an incredible payday. I'm sure it, that sounds very tempting, but uh, you don't know where that's going to go to some um, shadowy government agency that might be using it for nefarious purposes. At least personally, I don't know if I'd sleep well at night knowing that, but I don't know. I don't have $500,000 to sleep on either. So, <laughs> To me, like we've talked before about like this whole weird system of, you know, buying and selling these vulnerabilities and how, like, you're right. These are companies that, you know, like you can just go up to pay them a bunch of money and get the information for this. And it's an odd situation in that that might or might not be illegal that, you know, like, are you charged with hacking on this? But most of the customers of these are governments and these massive corporations that are doing stuff. 
And so to me, the real question is, is this a weapon? And, you know, we're starting to see more and more rhetoric around like, oh, like cyber warfare that you can take down actual, you know, physical installations of things. You can mess up economies. And those are all aspects of warfare. Do you think selling a zero day is selling a weapon? Like, and we have lots of restrictions about that. Should we have lots of restrictions around this kind of situation as well? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're basically looking at the start of Shadowrun being real, to be completely honest. <laughs> I like Shadowrun. Mike, do you have a tool of the week? I do. So it's a tool called UDP to Raw Tunnel. This is a tool that if you were trying to work out how to you know, get information out of a network and you didn't want it to be detected, you could use this to tunnel the traffic out. And so it bypasses uh, UDP firewalls, which are often blocked in corporate networks because it's used for a lot of like games networking stuff or, you know, P2P voice or video applications. So this is something that could bypass a lot of that by tunneling uh, UDP through raw sockets and thus getting out. And it does some other neat, interesting things as far as uh, like stabilizing your connections. Like it will like hold off and retry stuff. Like if even if you unplug from the Ethernet or your Wi-Fi gets disconnected and stuff. So just a neat, interesting tool. And just a thought with a lot of these tools and stuff, they bring them up almost in the context of this isn't something, oh, I should go download and use this. This is something you need to think about. You need to think about like, oh, could people on my network who are trying to mess things up, could they use this tool? Like, you know, until I read about this, I thought, oh, well, we have UDP firewall. We're all set. UDP can't get out of our network. Well, it's not exactly the case. You need to think about it in more in depth. So that's it. I'm sure we'll have a link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, it's on GitHub. UDP to raw tunnel. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Forrest Temple, Mike Thompson, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at Infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again soon. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone.